You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Just a few weeks into the coronavirus crisis, the literary magazine Dappled Things began publishing a series of poems that reflected in more or less real time on the strange world we all suddenly found ourselves in. There were eventually 15 of these poems, called collectively The Quarantine Notebook, and they appeared over the course of two months. I'm Michael Farmer. Our guest today on Christian Humanist Profiles is the author of The Quarantine Diary, James Matthew Wilson. He's an associate professor in the Department of the Humanities at Villanova University and the author of some 10 books of poetry and criticism. His latest book is The Strangeness of the Good, which includes The Quarantine Notebook. That'll be out tomorrow, uh, December 1st, from Angelico Press. I'm delighted that it's brought him on Christian Humanist Profiles today. Thanks for coming on the show, James. Michael, thanks for having me. Well, I'd like to begin by giving our listeners a taste of your poetry. Uh, Would you mind reading March 25th, 2020, one of the entries in the Quarantine Notebook? I'd love to. The um, March 25th, uh, well, you know what? I'm not going to say a word. I'm just going to launch it and read it. March 25th, 2020. I thought that looking back upon this time, I view it as the winter without snow. Out for a walk the other day, I heard the steady roar of a snowblower running, its owner burning off the tank of gas he'd filled in late November, when a trace of flurries made its feigning fall toward earth. We do not always read the hour rightly. The signs the times bear with them are obscured as if by gusting snow squalls in the headlights. And now it's something else that falls. The virus is spreading through New York. A friend of mine holed up in his apartment in Manhattan sends photos out of cans of beans and franks, beef chili paired with bottles of cheap wine, and Gowan in a tattered paperback edition, all captioned with quotations from Defoe and laughter at the way he's been marooned. A decade back, I recollect we shared bottles of yellowtail at a reception and talked of Auden late into the night. We met the morning after, our heads pounding, just like Sir Gowan, knelt in winter snow, who waited for the green knight's falling axe that with one swoop both spared and chastened him. The fearful flee that city like a flood. The wealthy spilling out into the Hamptons, where all the year-round residents who pour the drinks and scoop the ice cream through the summer are saying now, don't come, we cannot take you. They've covered up the welcome signs, would raise the bridges if they could. The hospitals are full, the groceries emptied far as Montauk. I was supposed to catch a New York train today myself, but that, of course, is canceled. And so I sat this morning on the couch and read my boys the opening of Five Children in It. Dear Panther and her siblings have fled the pestilential streets of London, where things are labeled with invisible signs, keep out or do not touch or go away, and every bit of fun gets one in trouble. They find themselves left at a country house, much like the Hamptons, if not quite so nice its chief appeal a neighboring gravel pit. While digging to Australia one day, their errant spade turns up a samiad, who startles with his gruff voice, snail-like eyes and furry little body snug in sand. They little know that he will grant them wishes, such useless guineas men stare at like sores, or giant wings with which to beat the air and rob a farmer's plum trees of their fruit, as if avenging angels sent by God. James blasts his trumpet in the living room. The straining pip-pip-pip of reveille flies unobstructed through my office door. It is, oh yes, Annunciation Day. How little we expect the news we hear until it comes upon us, brilliant, blazing, commanding we not feel the fear we feel and that we must unlearn all that we know so as to see the hour with new eyes and what is more, to trust Somehow we will endure that fate whose stroke has yet to fall. Thank you. In a way, the quarantine notebook poems seem to me to belong to an earlier age in which poetry was a vehicle for communicating news as well as timeless truths or personal feelings or whatever people think modern poetry is supposed to communicate. Nowadays, it's rare to see poetry responding to the world in real time as much as these do. Uh, could you talk about how you came up with the idea for them? Uh, I was I was sitting uh, in my study reading a book, and I, as as often happens, I just felt uh, the urge to write some pentameter lines, uh, 
And this was right around or on March 15th of last year. And and was just I really just wanted the satisfaction of writing some pentameter lines, some iambic pentameter lines. And um, and I was just describing the March day, which was the very beginning in Pennsylvania, anyhow, for uh, a quarantine. And um, then I saw that the lines were were coming out and describing that day and that weekend and that condition or state of our country uh, surprisingly compellingly. And so I just I just let myself keep writing. Um, and the next day I sat down and, and and wrote another one. And probably by the time I'd written a third poem, the one I've just read for you, I think, is the fourth. Um, by the time I'd written a third poem, I knew I was doing something. Um, I wasn't just exercising my hand and writing a few lines of verse. I was writing a poem. Um, and so uh, when I realized that, I thought, if this is going to be, I don't know if this is going to be a good poem in the sense of an enduring or lasting poem, but I do sense that it's capturing the news in real time, as you suggested. And so I uh, wrote editors at magazines uh, with, with whom I already had a working relationship uh, to see if anybody was interested in, in running this serially and would just see what happens, what came out. And, um, and I didn't get very far. Dappled Things magazine uh, immediately wrote back and said, "Yes, we want we want to do this," and uh, and so and so it began. And for two months, I kept it up, and then the poem ended itself. Oh, so you didn't you didn't ha- plan to do it for two months? The you you just knew you'd written the last one when you wrote it. Uh, that's right. I I sensed uh, I I sensed by as you said there were there were 15 installments by 12 or 13. I began to have a sense of of the the that the poem did have an arc and that the arc was was going to come uh, to its conclusion very soon. Um, the big, the big question that was, or the lingering question during the course of the composition of it was, when would it be genuine to say that the poem had ended, and when would it be genuine to say that the quarantine had ended? And and as it happens, um, May seventeenth, the the day of the uh, that the epilogue is written, um, uh, on that day. Or maybe it's uh, May 15th, the, the, the last installment before the epilogue. But um, in any case, you can check if, which one of those two is there, uh, it, it appears. But um, at that on that day, uh, I was sitting out in the backyard reading and could hear the hammers and the circular saw and the voices of workmen at a construction site that had lain idle for two months uh, hmm. since the start of quarantine, I could hear the work had begun again. And, and I knew that though, uh, in many respects, the, the, uh, uh, the, this chapter or the, the broader chapter of the coronavirus in our country was probably going to go on for much longer. And, it, and any sort of definitive event was, was going to be, uh, quite a ways away, uh, that, that definitely a first episode had concluded um, that the quarantine as, as most of us experienced it uh, had at that point stopped. And indeed that, that is what happened. Um, uh, people were going back to work at that point and uh, the traffic increased by our house and <laughs> we had to see people, more people outside. And uh, um, so things were definitely um, coming alive again with the, with the late spring. Uh, and so I, I, I sensed that the, that the poem had, had run its course. One thing I like about these poems, or I mean, you're calling it a single poem. I think of them as a, a kind of series. But yes, um, one thing I like about them is while they address the stuff that's going on with the pandemic, they don't feel cooped in by that at all. I mean, I, I guess literally they are cooped in because it is a quarantine notebook. But it, it shows the way that life has continued in your house, your the, the little space you live in. It has mm-hmm. continued in some ways unchanged from what it was like before uh, the quarantine, which I imagine is is something a lot of us felt like it, it it had been continued and yet made strange in that continuance. That is that is very true. Um, that the first of all living through this, and second of all writing a poem about it. In both cases, I I sensed 
uh, just what you're describing that um that uh in writing uh about our domestic life in part anyhow during the course of the of the quarantine i was in some ways just distilling and crystallizing aspects of our lives that were already there but had taken on uh had had been framed and rendered picturesque in a way um that that we might not have found them otherwise um i had uh i had been writing some a handful of poems that were related to the family and the children and and the, the house and um and had sensed that I think I wanted to do a little bit more uh, of that uh, in the months before quarantine, and um, but I didn't realize uh, that that's that's what was going to occur. The, the the coming of quarantine suddenly brought into focus the the need to sort of describe uh, what it was like to to in both domestically and abroad to uh, to live through this this time, and. Um, and it and it and it brought into focus things that were already there in American life and family life. In fact, I thought it was wonderfully clarifying mm-hmm. <laughs> the quarantine the quarantine period in, in that respect. And I and I also will say one of the ways in which I knew that the um, the end was coming to the poem was that I sensed that uh, um, uh, more and more of the details were. Uh, in the poem were ones that could have been written outside of quarantine mm-hmm. and that and that in some sense something had already was already beginning to lift and so I, it was time to bring the, bring the poem to an end I'll just say one more word about that you know the last epi- the last uh, poem um, of quarantine notebook as I said earlier was on uh, May se- May 17th it's an epilogue and uh, really by the time, that poem appeared in Dappled Things because we did we were running the poems on a on a week week and a half delay. Um, by the time that appeared, um, or at least within a couple days of its appearing, uh, George Floyd was killed, <laughs> and it felt to me as if um, Quarantine Notebook was already outdated, uh-huh. as if it were already part of another era in our country's history, and uh, and so actually in the strangeness of the good. There's one final poem called "When" that I wrote uh, after, well after quarantine, notebook, and, and in fact after the book had already been accepted by the publisher, but it just didn't feel as if the book was over. I needed, I needed you, I needed the reader to be able to turn the page and sense that there had been an abrupt page turning <laughs> in our country's history, and um, and that uh, I needed it for several reasons, including just my sense of being the author of this book, that the, the quarantine notebook already felt dated because of what, yeah. <laughs> what had erupted. And I was going to ask you, if, if the poem had continued for another six months, what would it look like? And I think you've kind of answered that, which is this poem, When, which I was actually going to have you read later on in the episode. Uh, so would you mind reading that one for us now? Uh, I'd be pleased to, yes. So this is the final poem in the book. The, the book as a whole has has four big sections the largest the largest one of them sorry four sections the largest one of which is the part three which is quarantine notebook the fourth section is just this one poem that concludes the volume when when noisome crowds turn out to flood the beach and with their flesh despoil all in reach when some boy burns his hand and squeals with pain only to touch it to the stove again when waiting for a carousel at the park you see pale tattooed bodies purple dark when this drunk stranger brags with all his force about his past adulteries and divorce will you look on it all just as you should and in that sordid wreckage find the good when you turn over leaves upon the vine where lantern flies cling gorging each veined line when great winds shake the trees and cut the power leaving you in the darkness of the hour when in the nursing home your mother dies, cut off from muttered prayers and useless cries. When every argument begets a roar and every careless thought erupts in war, will you maintain what once was understood, that even now the world as such is good? And when they hunt him through the soaking heat to leave him crumpled on a bloody street, and when behind calm eyes he seems to gloat and press his weight down on another's throat, 
and when you see them standing calmly there, indifferent as his last word dies in air, and when the glasses cracked, the streets aflame, with no word spoken but that burning name, will you stand as the Lord of all once stood, and somehow say that things are very good? Thank you. Uh, there's a kind of Walt Whitman quality to that poem, not in its form, but in its in its content. It's this description and blessing of everything in the world, including all these things that are very clearly not good uh, on the surface. Uh, and it ties into the, the, the phrase that makes up the, the title of the book, which comes from a different poem, The Strangest of the Good. And I just wonder, what is goodness? And what does it mean that we will all day one day have to say that all of these things are good. That's a, that's a question that, um, that, well, only a Christian humanist can answer, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, you know, I just, I just finished rereading with my students, Augustine's confessions, which is, is, uh, Augustine is, uh, the, the saint who's probably dearest to me in, and in so many different ways, and those of us who know know that book and know it well know that um, of the questions that Augustine has to answer for himself, the chief one is what is what is good and evil. And of course, he affirms that evil is uh, is a is a is a tear in the cloth of virtue. It's a hole in the fabric of of goodness, and that everything, insofar as it is, is good. And insofar as it defaults or defects from its being, only then does it suffer evil or can it be called evil and only and therefore evil is is merely an absence. Um, I think I think every human being knows that what Augustine finally theorizes is merely an explanation for what we all know. That uh, to turn from Augustine to Aquinas for a second, that um, that only being is good and nothing is good except being. Um, being, we sense the goodness of it. That existence wants to beget itself and give itself away, um, to diffuse itself and and uh, and make a gift of itself. And yet, within all of that plenitude, that ever fructifying coming to be of things there is such a continuous deformity and marring and maiming um, that so attracts the eye and the ear and the heart and the gut that we find it almost the defining characteristic of our experience of the world and the fact is that it will be the defining experience for us of the world because human life is is a kind of ascent and it's ascent from the goodness of being to being itself um, the beauty of creation to the the divine beauty of the one who creates um, that's the story of every life but we almost never see the narrative of our life as it actually transpires I'm thinking of Augustine departing from Carthage to Rome, fleeing his mother and her words about God and fleeing in pursuit of every worldly good, including, above all, a reputation for being grand and well-spoken at the heart of the Roman Empire. He thinks he knows what he's doing, and he, but writing in retrospect, he says, and you, God, were turning my vices and my fleeing from you to, account, to good account. And as I fled from you, you were bringing me back to you. There is no way to perceive the fullness of the good of being merely by accepting the basic goodness of things, the things that appear to us as apparently good from the start. Um, The world operates with a sense of black comedy and irony and humor to bring us against ourselves to a full perception uh, of of its mystery and so the goodness always gives itself to us in a strange strange way Hmm. 
So do you see that as your job as a poet is to, to kind of fish the, the goodness out of all the, I, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to use a metaphor here that doesn't make sense uh, in an Augustinian way, right? Because it, it, it can't be in the middle of something. It's in the middle of nothing to, to find the goodness in the midst of all this nothingness. I, I, that's a good way of putting it. I'm not sure how to respond to it. I think um, uh, there, there are, there are some primary jobs of the poet that that really kind of sound like cliches when you say them aloud, but that doesn't make them any less true. <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, but but um, attention to being seems to be the fundamental job of the poet. Um, and uh, it, you know, my, in my book, The Fortunes of Poetry in an Age of Unmaking, I talk about this somewhat extensively, using Aristotle and, and Plato as as uh, as guides. Um, all the arts are narrative and character in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, uh, narrative poetry, the epic poem, the dramatic poem, prose fiction, films, plays, these things are, are narrative most explicitly. And so we might incline with Aristotle to say that what poetry does is retells the story of an action. And through that action, we arrive at some kind of insight on the nature of good and evil, both the good and evil of a, of a situation or circumstance, the good or evil of a character who performs an action, and the good and evil of an, of an action and the consequences that follow from it. And so uh, many people have turned to Aristotle and his poetics over the millennia to affirm the, that, that poetry has an essentially ethical dimension to it. That it's that insofar as Aristotle says that poetry is philosophical, it's philosophical because it sheds light on the way in which actions um, are to be judged and the way in which actions follow probably from each other uh, to a good or an evil end. That's all true, but it's just not profound enough. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, it's what Aristotle's describing there is a perception of being, um, but the perception of a specific kind of being, the being of a, of a human character in human action um so it's really to plato especially the phaedrus when uh you know socrates tells us that poets are literally sixth rate human beings but then he proceeds to deliver a poem a palinode revealing the nature of the soul the nature of truth and the core the whole course of the cosmos all in about 20 pages in the translation i use with uh, with my students um and we re- and, and he says at one point, uh, depends on your translation, but the one that gets the Greek right says, um, "I'm going to tell you something that poets have never said before." When he reveals all these things, and at that moment we get the idea of why uh, Aristotle and, in fact, most accounts of poetry are not profound enough. They either tell, you know, tell us that poets just imitate and therefore. Their fictions are mere fictions and pleasing and entertaining, but of, of no great significance. Or with Aristotle, they say, no, no, no. There's a kind of philosophical depth to poetry insofar as poetic form gives us a sense of ethical form and the truth about good and evil. But Socrates takes us a giant step forward to say that um, it's through the poetic image that we can unveil in human terms, the ascendant and transcendent mysteries of the world and the nature of truth. And I think that um, recalling that is uh, is important for the poet, so that some of the things that I think uh, that I need to do as a poet is, one, just to shed light on being, to, to reveal things and to, um, to practice the art of attention and to write poems that, that reward the art of attention for, for those who read them. Um, and then, of course, within that and beyond that, also to uh, to remember that, that the arts really are narrative arts. And so we have to be able to tell good stories as well. Let's talk about form, um, because you belong, I think, roughly to this vague group of poets called the New Formalists, uh, as I'm sure all our listeners know, structured meter and rhyme are pretty rare in contemporary poetry, especially the stuff that gets passed around a lot. 
So I, I would love to hear you make a case for them. What does formal poetry offer us that free verse in its various forms can't? It's pretty easy to make that case. I, fi- um, I figured you'd be ready for it. <laughs> I, I began, I began um, as a writer writing prose fiction, writing short stories and, and novels, uh, and, um, and had what seemed like it was uh, some very promising success. I was... Um, I was a runner-up for GQ Magazine's annual Frederick Exley uh, Fiction Prize when I was uh, still uh, a student in, in college, and they and they asked for more work, and I started sending them uh, stories. And, and uh, uh, while that was occurring, only the year before, uh, a fellow who was a few years older than me had had been a similar runner-up and had um, gone on to sign a, a three or four book deal, and has. Um, has been um, publishing novels and now writing screenplays ever since. So I thought I'm on the cusp of something, but something, something went out of the heart of my desire to write prose fiction. Also right around that time, it began to feel like a professional gesture, just as I was on the cusp of maybe beginning to practice it professionally. And, uh, and at that time I had come to start reading poetry and when i was reading for pleasure i was exclusively reading poetry i was really only reading prose fiction to see what it could teach me as a as a writer uh and and the joy had gone out of even the reading of it for me it came back later but in a very very different way um i was already a writer what was it that poetry had that prose fiction didn't it certainly wasn't simply breaking the prose into lines and on the whole it didn't seem to me it wasn't it's um the the relative indifference to narrative of the lyric it was it was verse it was meter and it was the combination of meter and rhyme that are typical in the modern languages um that was the one thing missing from prose fiction and it seemed uh a mysterious and marvelous thing mm-hmm. as soon as I came to understand it. When we write in meter, we're doing a number of things. When we read in meter, we're also doing a number of things. The first thing that meter does is it's just the furthest refinement of our speech. It's um, Meter is the last stage of rhetoric. <laughs> when we go from polished to fully polished, where every syllable is being accounted for in its very syllableness. So, um, so at the level of rhetoric, poetry is metrical poetry is simply refined rhetoric. But we sense that refined rhetoric also entails the possibility of depth, complexity, and texture of meaning. And those three things are not are not the same thing, though I'm not going to belabor the, the point. Um, one can attain levels of connotation and uh, and and layers of, of what Dante called the polysemus of multiple layers of levels of meaning through the use of meter in part, though not exclusively. That's that's a function of language, too, as a whole. But um, but meter adds to that. And the furthest depth of that is this. All art is, in some sense, an imitation of nature. Or to put it better, all art is an imitation or a reflection of being. And we sense, and and the practice of art is to sense the order without us, beyond us, in the cosmos, and the order that's within us, in the microcosmos. And to give formal expression to that form and order that's already to be to be found. And so when you're writing in meter, by mathematizing your language, by ordering it with the the kinds of numbers that are rhythmical or metrical numbers, you're allowing language itself to imitate or reflect the the um, number, measure, and weight of creation as a whole, as the Book of Wisdom pronounces it to us. 
And so the very superficial act of writing a line of pentameter is already to begin to participate in the broader order of the cosmos and of creation. Huh. Well, that's a more metaphysical answer than I expected, I have to say. <laughs> I love it. Well, it's... Uh, the uh, I started with rhetoric. <laughs> I, I'll tell you, uh, you know, in, in The Fortunes of Poetry, I... I, I uh, include a couple of poems, one by J.V. Cunningham and one by um, a latter-day descendant of, of Cunningham's, uh, D- the English poet Dick Davis, who both of whom say defiantly, ah, you call me a mere versifier. Well, fine. I'm happy not being living up to your standards of being a poet. I just want to write verse. Verse is, is the only girl for me. It's where um, Dick Davis's poem ends. And I would be completely fine with that um, totally metaphysically agnostic answer. Uh, th- there's just a delight and pleasure in making syllables click together and making rhymes echo each other um, that is so irreducible and not to be found anywhere else and seems so consummate. It seems like um, the joy that I take in telling a joke or in making a pun with my kids has been taken to a kind of its absolute formal limit uh-huh. when I'm writing in rhyme and meter. Um, and so on the level of pleasure alone, I could justify the art. But I do think, um, like every good thing, um, pleasure is always a sign, as with every good thing, I should say, pleasure is always a sign of something else uh, hidden below and um, or above. And I think that's the case with meter as much as with um, with sitting at the dinner table with our family. There's a kind of metaphysical perfection even to light verse, right? I mean, everybody likes light verse. It's almost impossible not to. Even if you groan at it, you like it because it, it, it as you say, it clicks into something at the very heart of humanity. I think that's right. I mean, um, you know, uh, if you're if you're a Nietzsche or a W. B. Yeats, then you get angry at the existence of comedy because comedy seems superficial, whereas tragedy seems to open up the great wound, <laughs> the great, a great fissure in being so you can see into the dark heart of things. Um, uh, they're right in their way. But, um, you know, Auden in the 1930s began celebrating light verse and indeed edited the Oxford Book of Light Verse. And I think he recognized that um, that we sense uh, communion and community coming into being through our laughter uh, in, in, uh, and in, in the kind of humorous uh, rhymes that jokes and, and, and the humorous and the light uh, uh, bring about. Um, uh, if, if things are good, they, as Dante says, they really are a, a comedy uh, in the end. <laughs> and, um, and I think in light verse, there's something irresistible because without thinking about it, just our, our gut response to humor makes us say start chuckling that the world should be ordered the way it is right it's light light verse works a little bit like uh, a locked room mystery or something where there's only there's only one solution and when you're reading it you can't figure it out and when it happens you recognize that it couldn't have been any other way so Sorry to get profound on you here, but no, no, that's okay. <laughs> but but that's what uh, um, if if you know uh, von Balthasar's um, philosophy, uh, theology of beauty, um, and his account of love in uh, the book Love Alone Is Credible. Um, his insistence is that, uh, and I I think this is exactly right, is that when we perceive the beautiful, we perceive the laws of being. Beauty is not superficial. Beauty is the the form that discloses the intelligible wholeness of of being and, and of the goodness of things, and the and the way in which the uh, those those good things give themselves away uh, and stand therefore in consequence in relation to one another, to themselves, to us, and to God. And um. And uh. But the thing is, um, if if art has its laws. Those laws are never perceived or are almost never perceived in advance. I think one of the pleasures of writing a meter is that you do get some laws that start you out, but then they take you places you never expected to go. Right. Uh, and that's what light verse does, too. Uh, but 
Uh, I think the way von Balthasar summed it up is thinking of, oh gosh, I think his example is always Mozart's Requiem, that Mozart's Requiem could not have ended any way than it did, unless it did, by which he means <laughs> that mo- there's no way Mozart, in sitting down could to compose the Requiem, could have known how it was going to end in advance, and yet the ending was indeed preordained by the interior law of the being of that of, of that work. Um, and th- you know, and that's what Aristotle tells us about uh, plots and stories. Um, a bad story is one where you see the laws of its uh, of the story, the laws of the plot unfolding so inevitably that you know it how it's going to end. The best stories for us are those that contain reversals and epiphanies or revelations, where we make our way through what may even seem to us an episodic and totally unintelligible series of events. And only at the end do we, often with the characters, stand in place, turn about, look back, and realize in retrospect that we can see the whole form unfolding according to an inevitable law that was totally invisible until that moment. Um, this is this is our routine experience of the arts, that we perceive the law that governs them that is a law that's not given to us in advance. And so they're always surprising and delighting us. Uh, with the intelligibility of things. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, and it makes sense, and it's and, and and it fits very well into this argument for using these metrical and um, and rhyme forms that so much contemporary poetry doesn't use. And I mean, I, I know that you've written about T.S. Eliot, so I know that you're not against free verse, but it does seem to me that while bad metrical poem is bad, bad free verse is earth-shakingly bad. You if, know, because the, the bad metrical poetry, somebody had to work to make it, whereas as free verse, you really could just take uh, Heidegger's being in time and cut up the sentences into... into um, into free verse and and give it no thought beyond that and and some of the bad free verse that seems to be everywhere on the internet i i think um probably did something very much like that there's no there's no work required free verse does induce chronically bad writing um and i i think i think we need to as a culture we need to step back and ask (laughs) why is it uh that people would want to write poetry in the first place mm-hmm. um you know if you're if you're every every child in our country is educated every child in our country goes to school and we will consider that school to have failed if every child doesn't leave that school capable of writing a competent essay um that should be our criterion for poetry writing too um every person ought to be able to write a competent ballad or a competent sonnet simply to be uh, literate. And literacy, metrical literacy, actually should be the goal. That is to say, if I expect every student to write an essay, I'm certainly not presuming that every student is going to become uh, a practicing writer for the rest of his life or or, uh, a master of the form. I just expect a certain kind of literacy that says you're – you're a finished human being, <laughs> and this is one of the things human beings do. Um, so also, every one of us should have the possibility to write a poem so as to, I don't know, propose to the girl who you want to be your your wife, uh, or to celebrate an anniversary, uh, or just to um, uh, write it on the flyleaf of a book you're giving as a gift. Uh, these don't these don't have to be works of genius. But every human being is capable of writing something reasonably well made. Um, we can make the clay pottery ashtray for our dad in third grade art class. We can write a decent essay on Shakespeare, and we can write um, a little bit of verse for uh, for those we love. Um, that seems to be a, a kind of basic competence that we that we we ought to aspire to <laughs> as normative for ourselves and um and i think the, the reason when you encounter metrical poetry and i'm just trying to echo your sentiment here because i think it's absolutely right um when i read a pretty mediocre poem if i think it's 
reasonably well turned. Um, I think it's quite good. You know, I'm, I'm teaching a verse writing class to uh, to my students uh, right now, and they're writing their first sonnets, their first ballads uh, of their lives at this point. And what they're producing is is pretty good. It's way better, I think, uh, as poetry than what they would probably be producing if they were trying to write free verse. Mm-hmm. Um, because where they where there's a cliche sentiment here or there, if uh, that cliche sentiment gets reformulated in a kind of striking way just because of the rhyme that that student's coming up with, uh, something new and good comes into the world that wasn't there before uh, in which we can genuinely take pleasure. So let's say that let's say that writing metrical poetry, light verse, however you want to think about it, is this kind of innate human skill. And I, I think in some ways it is. And certainly almost everybody when they're a kid enjoys doing this, right? Where do you see what you do as a, as a high-level professional poet? I don't know if you consider yourself a professional poet, but let's say you are. How do you, how do you see that on that continuum? I, I mean, is it, is it just a elevated version of what everybody does or everybody should be able to do, or are you doing something different? Uh, I think the former. I, um, uh, you know, I mean, there there are so many poems that I have read written by people with with no pretensions or aspirations to publish their work, um, where I just I just sit and appreciate and some and and often enough envy the craft that I see on display there. Um, so. So I certainly don't perceive <laughs> any any meaningful difference uh, uh, in, in terms of you know, my my day to day experience of, of of reading other people's work. That's for sure. Um, yeah, I don't I don't have anything great to say about it. I don't I don't, I don't I'm not, if if you're asking me for what gives me to write the right to publish my poems when so many other people don't, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my right, <laughs> as far as I know. Well, I mean, you use the word craft, and I, I mean, I, what, you, what you're what you're elucidating is the kind of the kind of vision of poetry as craft, as opposed to yes. the work of some sort of world historical genius. You know, that, that's that's right. I mean, um, the the uh, this is this is an old thing to say now, but um, but the uh, the categorical separation of the fine artist from the artisan um, was. What captures some truth and and is ill-conceived in other respects. I mean, the, uh, most artisans are making things, and those things are good if they're if they can be put to some use outside of themselves. The watchmaker is only making a good watch if the watch is going to tell time, for instance. Um, the maker of a poem uh, or of a story or of a painting um, uh, those are those are intrinsic rather than useful goods, so they have to be judged. Uh, so the thing made has to be judged in terms of its own goodness, um, and and therefore can't be tested against some further use. Uh, but uh, and and that's why we call the fine arts the fine arts because they have they have affinitude to them. Their 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 end is to make this beautiful thing um, that uh, that is going to be brought into being and kept in being for its own sake and not for some further use we're going to make of it, or at least not primarily though. You know, sometimes the fine arts do are put to use uh, in different ways. Um, uh, but we, so there is a difference between the artisan who's making the useful thing and the fine artist who's making the thing that's that's considered an end in himself. But in terms of craft work, uh, the artisan and the artist are are identical um, or virtually identical. There are probably more um, rules that the artisan can know in advance. Than there are for the fine artist, um, and that's you know the first uh, as far as I know the first use of the word genius was in Kant talking about the artist and 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 he more or less says that the, the genius is the one who gives the law to art. Um, it's it's the genius of the of the maker himself who endows the thing with a law. Um, that's not quite true. Uh, I don't think any poet feels autonomy over his work he see he senses the inevitability of those laws that he doesn't know yet unfolding within the work and leading it where it has to go that's why um that's why uh to just reflect to something that we were talking about before the podcast why um 
why maybe an editor sometimes is hesitant to to give commentary on a poem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, does, he 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 senses the inevitability and the necessity of the laws of this particular work, and and doesn't want to risk breaking or vitiating them by imposing something that's exogenous to that work that that stands outside of it and maybe would just mere, merely be an imposition. Um, one of the joys of being a metrical poet is that on the one hand you begin with certain definite laws. Um, the, the metrical law and uh, and that law simply sets you out on this pilgrimage and path of mystery where you have no idea what you're going to discover um, it's it's as surprising as as a good rhyme I, I really like the way John Crow ransom talks about it as a as a kind of fight between the meaning and the the meaning and the form that if, if, if you're using a meter, you're having to shove your your idea into that meter, which is going to change the idea in a way that you can't really foresee. So the poem ends up being written by you, but also written by the meter that you've chosen or that it's demanded to be written in. I, I love Ransom's work a great deal, and I um, and I think actually, yeah, his very dualistic account of of uh, poetry. Uh, reveals something to us and he'll talk about the um the content or the prose meaning or the scientific meaning and the irrelevant texture and and poetry is his archetypal art form because the meter is is such a uh is is an example example numero uno as it were of irrelevant texture um i think i think he gets he gets a lot of things right about the art of poetry with with that kind of dualistic formulation including that meeting certain kinds of coming face to face with certain kinds of laws, certain kinds of internal resistance within a, within a poem that's still not even fully brought into being, um, will force you and take you in in different directions than you might have thought you were going to go. Um, I do think he pushes this point much too far though, frankly, Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that, uh, in, in terms of, uh, the iambic line, um, the reason English meter is iambic, uh, not exclusively, but almost exclusively, is because the iambic conforms very closely to um, the basic features of our language. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in a, English speakers, rhythms rise and fall in a way that, say, uh, it, and with a, reg, a frequency and regularity that, say, speakers of French uh, d- do not. Um, we uh, our our uninflected language tends to group. Um, nouns and verbs with with other small words in between, and so we have a, re- a more or less regular alternation of uh, of heavier, weightier, substantial words and and lighter ones that 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 make syntax possible for us. Um, and then and then we have uh, you know in our in our uh, polysyllabic words we just have a regular alteration of stress built in. There's you. You do not say saxophone. You say saxophone, and you and there's a right and a wrong way to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, when Dr. Johnson in the 18th century said that um, that prosody was part part of grammar, he was actually primarily talking about what what used to be called pointing. That is to say, getting pronunciation right, um, knowing which which syllable is stressed and which isn't. Um, uh, these these features of our language uh, are already present and already informing the rhythms of every sentence every human being sorry every english speaking human being says and and will ever say all iambic verse does is slightly tighten slightly tension slightly regularize and measure the alternations that are already occurring in our speech and at that moment we get just a slight further refinement of the rhythms of our speech that are already there um and so it should be one that uh, that comes fairly naturally and easily to us. Um, I I love those colloquial phrases that that uh, are pentameters. You know, the toilet's clogged again. Please call the plumber. Um, that's that's a line of pentameter with a feminine ending. Um, <laughs> it's <laughs> uh, it, you know it's uh, it's it's this is a, it's it's our everyday speech. Um, it's just our everyday speech. Uh, regularized. But on the other hand, rhyme is so unusual in English compared to French or Italian or Spanish, the, the Romance languages anyway. Um, yes. That, that, so if you're if you're writing a sonnet, you're you're doing something that's very natural combined with something that's very unnatural. Yes, uh, I mean, um, rhyme. 
using rhyme sounds to make our speech articulate is, is very ancient. Uh, homeo teleton, I think it's the Greek word for it. Um, it's probably mispronouncing it there, though. But, uh, um, but uh, you know, the poets of the 16th and 17th century were uh, in English were very uh, insecure because they they all read Latin and some of them had Greek, and so they knew more or less well they could discern more or less well how classical prosody unfolded and they you didn't they didn't need to be an expert to see that one thing it certainly didn't have is rhyme um and so rhyme seemed like some kind of crude barbaric anglo-saxonism that uh um that that undermined the integrity of english poetry rather than uh affirmed it as a a craft and a technique that could stand side by side with 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 Virgil and Cicero uh, or Homer and Plato, and um, and so there is a kind of artificiality to rhyme, but of course uh, that 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 can strike some people as barbaric. In English, though we we though our language is very rich in rhymes, rhyming is a little bit harder than it is in Italian and French, as as you were mentioning. And so that has really incited English poetry to do things with rhyme that um, that that you don't find as much in the other languages. And that is to uh, to have the rhyme as it runs down the right column of the verse of the verses um, uh, to generate an alogical texture of of meaning that um, uh, that runs alongside. The syntax and the and the, the horizontal movement, or sorry, runs down, whereas the the meaning itself is running, as it were, horizont- horizontally from line across line and line and sentence and sentence, um, and that makes uh, makes it possible for English poetry to gain this kind of ruffled density to it that actually I think Ransom uh, is is one of the su- superb uh, describers of. In one of his late essays, he talks about the poem as being like a Christmas tree. It's rough and woolly with its needles standing up tall, and it's and it's hung with all kinds of of strange ornaments that um, that draw our attention and increase the interest, uh, but whose connection to the whole we can't always um, right away discern, and in fact whose connection to the whole may not be entirely organic. It might be sort of artificial. Um, it's a it's a lovely homely image for for the work of art, a Christmas tree. Hmm. We we should really talk about some more of the actual poems in this book, although this conversation is very very interesting. We, uh, I, I hope it'll sell some uh, some copies of the Strangeness of the Good. So uh, let's move on to a couple of the, uh, the non quarantine poems. <laughs> yes, or quarantine notebook, excuse me. Yeah. Um, a number of them deal with what we might call the poet in autumn, which is to say that they find you struggling with middle age and reevaluating your approach to the world and to your own work. So I wonder how writing poetry in your 40s has been different than writing in your 20s and 30s. I think that's um, that's a that's a just observation. And just to uh, um, to to actually try to put in words for the first time ever um, for uh, for um, my first book, Some Permanent Things, that's a long book. I, there's um, 40 poems in, in, in there, more than 40, actually, including four long verse letters that are um, – it's the first long poem I ever wrote. Uh, it's probably 40 pages of the volume. Um, uh, but So it's a fairly long book, but within that book, um, uh, one, of the, one of the central poems for me is – uh, a sestina I wrote for my daughter Livia when she was first born. It's called A Prayer for Livia Grace. One, one of the first poems I ever published. Um, and that's a poem about the transformation of being a fellow in his 20s who's who suddenly discovering the, the, speaking of metrical laws, the laws that come with uh, with fatherhood and the and the the beneficial and generative and fruitful constraints that come with marriage uh, and, and home life and, uh, and fatherhood. Uh, and that, and that theme follows through parts of that book, including, uh, what's the most ambitious poem, uh, I think in the volume as a whole, which is, um, well, two of the, uh, one is the verse letter to my father, which talks about setting up house, um, for the first time when, 
with with Livia and, and my wife Hillary, and then um, and then the uh, the final poetic sequence of the of the second edition of that book um, called the the Christmas preface, six four poems for Advent and, and two for Christmas. Um, those are all about coming to discover um, the the bracing and chastening ethical life and joy of of realizing the limitations of fatherhood after after the the lawlessness of youth i guess you might say uh-huh. and um and uh the hanging god the second book uh the second my second collection of poems um has something similar to it as well it has it has some poems about uh the uh uh, the frustrations of not being able to see the form of one's life unfolding in a meaningful way, and uh, and also a, a poetic sequence on the desire to escape from all constraint. Um, in fact, it has a couple of them that you might call desires to escape from all constraint uh, that culminate in in two things. One is um, is the Stations of the Cross, uh, a 14-part poem that follows the 14 Stations of the Cross and the and the Passion of Christ um, from his condemnation. To his being set in the tomb, and then uh, and then the the closing poem of the book, which really leaves off just where the strangeness of the good begins, is a, a poem in, in heroic couplets called um, uh, called Autumn Road, that is uh, written in the fall of 2016, and 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 looking at the upcoming election and the acrimony uh, that seems to be dividing uh, household against household. And um, and 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 sees within the darkness of the autumn days uh, that nonetheless nature, as it were, is a moral uh, communicating news of God to us and 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 the intelligibility of things. Um, even in that poem, uh, Mike, uh, it's it's clear that it's a it's a it's a young father with with. With exclusively small children who who he has to worry about and and who are still waking up with nightmares um, from having seen scary stuff at Halloween, uh, this poem or this book begins with with things just a little bit older and insofar as it has a domestic focus at all, it's um, contesting with uh, or grappling with um, seeing not uh, the first fruitfulness of marriage and children, but having to contend with the um uh the disappointment and the the uh the inevitability of having people taken away from you in one way or another uh and and indeed even possibly uh losing your own children um whether for the short period of adolescence or or longer because of the estrangements that sometimes intrude in adolescence um that i saw that as a as a continuous theme of this book um, so it's it's not so much about me at middle age, although I think that's some of there's some of that here too. Um, but there's it's it's more about me recognizing in a in a broader sense than my own um, failing body um, uh, the uh, the conditions that that come that come with with a, a new age in life uh, for for both myself and for those around me. I'll say just briefly, even even a poem. That in substance has nothing to do with that <laughs> is one that I I know nobody else knows because I've never said it aloud before, but was written in response to just my uh, worry about uh, one of my sons, even though he's not mentioned to the poem. <laughs> which which poem which poem are you talking about? Uh, Good Friday, two thousand thirteen, driving northward. Okay. Yeah, that's the the first poem in section two, right? Yes. So so that's a poem about. It, the, the title is pretty descriptive. Um, it's the, uh, it's about. Um, I just realized after I'd written, the, just as I was finishing writing the poem, I thought, huh, this is this poem has a certain kinship to the great um, John Donne poem. In fact, my favorite single John Donne poem, Good Friday, sixteen thirteen, riding westward. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's a poem that's it's about an experience I had of, of, of seeing the world resume its shape um, and, and sensing um, the, the brilliant givenness of things 
But it's a poem that was inspired. Uh, it, 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 in passing, I mentioned that I've, I've promised that I'm driving through the dark in the early morning on Good Friday because I promised to be home. What inspired that poem was something that never comes up beyond the fact that I promised to be home, and that was um, uh, one of my sons had been behaving badly and was and and was talking uh, rancorously to me uh, one morning, <laughs> and and ungratefully as if I didn't love him, and uh, and I that had ended and I went into my office and I thought, you know, I love you, buddy. <laughs> and I've, I've done a few things for you. Like the time that I got up at, uh, at four in the morning to drive home from Virginia so that you could be at your school for your Easter egg hunt at nine in the morning on a good Friday. Um, because we only have one car. And if I didn't get the car home, you couldn't go to school that day. Um, and uh, and that that's what inspired the writing of the poem, even though that doesn't in any meaningful way enter into the poem. Well, that's um, that's interesting because yeah. that that's the sort of thing that people write poems about when they grow up and realize that their parents did things like that for them. I'm I'm thinking, oh, what's that Robert Hayden poem? Those those winter yes. Sundays. Oh yes. So it's it's yeah, like that poem, poem from the other direction almost. It is, yeah. I was because I was feeling a little wounded when I wrote that. Poem. <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better. There's nothing about that poem that seems petulant in any way. Like you don't you don't sound wounded, you don't sound angry. If if that's the background of the poem, you you transmuted it into something completely different. Well, by the time I wrote that poem, I was feeling nothing but gratitude for for the existence of things, but um but it it just it fascinates me that um th- there are poems that are explicitly uh thematize uh worrying about your adolescent child in this in this book um and uh and not just my own adolescent child but but children in general uh, in a in a broken culture like ours um and uh and and so it just after the book had had taken shape um and i looked at the form of it i thought isn't it funny that even a poem that in fact is the antidote to that dismay and despair, the strangeness of these good children that you're feared, <laughs> fearful are going to be taken away from you or some evil will befall them in their lives. Um, that one of the poems I put there that's really more or less just a simple affirmation of the goodness of things, even that has twisted in a knot somewhere deep inside of it uh, its origin in a kind of wounded woundedness. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's that's fascinating. The, the, the poems hang together even if you don't. Um, you don't expect them to hang together. You don't intend them to hang together. Yes. They hang on their own. Yes. Yes. Well, I have so many more questions to ask, but I'm afraid we're running out of time. So, uh, you know, in the spirit of hospitality here on Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to give our guests the final word. What haven't we talked about that you would like our listeners to know? Oh, my goodness. I like interviews because you ask that you have to do the hard work of coming up to stuff to talk about. And I just have to respond. The strangest of the good. The reason the book is called The Strangest of the Good and not Quarantine Notebook is because there are more strange things on Earth than just this coronavirus catastrophe that has befallen us and in which my quarantine notebook manages to find um, some good things to think about within within the bad. Um, the when I, I sense that this this book really um, uh, wrote itself, the poems took uh, assumed their place uh, with a kind of inevitability um, that often happens within a section of a book or within a sequence, a poetic sequence I'm working on, but rarely happens at the scale of a whole book. But this one really did. Um, and uh, the poem Through the Water, from which the book takes its title, is... Um, is I think one of those themes, which is it's a very Augustinian poem. In fact, the first stanza is more or less a summary of a passage from St. Augustine um, on the nature of memory. Uh, but just the way in which human life is this continuous encounter with the appearance of things and the continuous sense that we would be dismayed if appearance was all there was, and the reason we'd be dismayed is because we already sense in the deepest eros of ourselves that it's not, that we are called beyond the life of mere appearances and the life of mere bodies um, into a mystery that transcends us and that, in fact, completes us, and that is our uh, communion with God and our contemplation of him. 
and I and so it's 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 one of the the burdens of this book to try to reveal both um, uh, the horrors and sorrows of everyday life. I've I've done plenty of that in my poetry, but but above all, um, uh, that that that's always only the first draft of our experience of reality, huh. and that our experience of reality is, is much more profound and thankfully much more fruitful and uh, uh, and fulfilling. I think that's why you got to end with that poem, Win. I'm, I'm shocked to hear that it wasn't there in the original, original draft of the, of the book because it really it, it, it asks the question that the rest of the book is implicitly asking. Yes. Well, the question was there from the beginning, but the um, it was uh, you know at the end of the quarantine notebook there's a reference to um, the shooting of uh, uh, Arbery down in, in Georgia mm-hmm. uh, that that appears in uh, part 14, um, but with the the death of George Floyd and the the riots, um, uh, I that that just seemed to. <laughs> um, First of all, require that I make some further statement within the context of the book, but it also it really did bring the book to an ending. I mean, I I cannot imagine ending this book <laughs> with quarantine notebook. That just doesn't feel right at all, right. even though that's how it was in, in, originally conceived. But what am I saying? I guess I'm just saying the same thing I said. Balthazar says, um, uh, and Aristotle says, this book inevitably ended with that poem. I just couldn't know that until the book was done. Right. Yeah. The book. The book wrote itself, and you. You just kind of transcribed it in some ways, right? Or I guess I you participated so. in its writing, but you didn't create it. I did the craft part, but all the stuff that the the part the muses give us, <laughs> as Diotima says in the symposium, um, uh, there's, you know, the the reason that that the fine arts are sort of our first kind of making is because we sense, and this this is again part of the truth of what Ransom was talking about. We sense that all the craft in the world is not going to prepare you for the writing of the poem. There's something um, given to us, and that's not up to us in uh-huh. the making of a poem. Um, and indeed, that's true. That's one of the ways in which the poet is the typical human person, in that so much of what makes our lives is not our actions and our deliberate choices, um, not because those things are not central and not because they don't play a role, but because they're always already responding to something that's prior to ourself, above all, uh, the gift of the goodness of our own being. Well, right, and yeah, and it, it's the the kind of failure of the modern world. Gabriel Marcel talks about this somewhere in Homo Viator. The the yes. it's the failure of the modern world that it looks at that stuff and instead of seeing a gift given to us, sees as something that infringes upon our freedom. And that's true. And now maybe we're yeah. back to now maybe we're back to formal poetry versus free verse. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, uh, <laughs> I I asked the final question, and now I'm t- I'm bringing it back around to myself like a jerk. I'm sorry about that. I, I think that's a great. Um, I I I I don't have I have no objection to what you're saying. That sounds that sounds right to me. I really do think um, that uh, that I've learned how to respond better to the gift of being and to the gift of life. Um, by learning how to be a pretty humble craftsman responding to um, what's what's given to me when I try to write a poem, including the constraints, uh, to the extent that they are constraints, uh, of, of meter and rhyme. Um, there's, that's, you know, the term creative writing has always seemed very inapt to me about what... <laughs> what a writer is doing and what an artist is doing it's it's a kind of making more than a creating it's a kind of receiving rather than uh, a, a a genesis well we've been talking to the poet and essayist james matthew wilson whose latest book is called the strangeness of the good and that is available tomorrow december 1st from angelica press you'll find a link to purchase it on the show notes for this episode at christianhumanist.org Christian Humanist Profiles is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Thanks for listening.